This is Melissa. It is the 3rd of September, 2023, and this Redux is from a talk that Alan gave on July the 27th, 2007, entitled Medieval Feudal Collective to Capitalist Monopolist, The Dilemma of Individualism in Stormy Seas. And the title kind of tells you where he's going down through time regardless of the system that one finds themselves under, we are guided towards collectivism and conformity to the group and the group norms. And of course, the group norms change wildly over time. And at about minute 20 of this talk, Alan asked the question, so that takes us to the problem of what is individuality. I remember early on Alan talking to me about qualities that make one a unique individual and that the problem that you're faced with when you so-called wake up or you become aware that you're born into a system is uncovering who you really are as opposed to what you've been programmed to be. And he would say to me, you're just a composite of your programming. And well, you know, nobody likes to hear that. But Alan over and over told us to know ourselves. He said it again in this talk, to study yourselves, your behaviors. And why do you behave that way? Why do you like what you like? It's because most of the time, this is what you've been told you should like or you should do. You should go here. This is what the group does. I was talking to Johnny on Dynamic Independence on Wednesday, and we were talking about news and how we're bombarded with so much, what, what to look at, what to pay attention to. And the truth is, is that none of us can follow even a portion of what we're being told on a daily basis is important. You need to know this. You need to look at that. And so it's a process of elimination, you know, on any given day, what seems to be the most important thing that you're looking at. And one thing that Alan would advise is just don't look at it. You know, take some breaks from what you're told is so important because most of the time it doesn't affect your life. And when it does, the having the elasticity in your mind from not having mental fatigue is, is helpful to approach it and, and say, well, what can I do? What can I do about this? But one of the things that I was talking to Johnny about was the idea that we might be programmed in real time through technology. And I received a, an audio recording from Darren in South Africa, just a few minutes, which I'm going to now incorporate into this recording with his permission, of course. And he had just said that, you know, sometimes he wanted to be a part of the conversation. He had something he wanted to comment on that, which was he didn't feel, well, I'll, I'm going to just play the recording now and you can hear what he said. Hi, Melissa. Hope all is well. Yes, yeah, sorry to send you a voice message. You did say that you got the last one. It's just that when a thought really grabs you and you want to share it, trying to type it out with a little device is 
it's really difficult. But I was, I was just listening to your talk with Johnny on uh, dynamic independence, and you were talking about a topic which is very, very central to me with regard to programming people's minds in real time. And yourself and Johnny were discussing it and wondering how it gets done. And I just wanted to add my piece here because it's something I've observed, something that Alan shared when he first went to school. I had a similar experience to Alan. I was I was sort of similar to Alan in that regard. I noticed things very young. And I noticed on the playground, the kids would play this game. It was What was it called? It was called something Robin. But there were various games. And um, what I noticed very, very early on is that like birds that fly in massive groups and change direction so quickly and easily, there's silent communication between people. I, I saw it. I saw it in action. I saw it at school, how all the kids would have one mind. They'd all be doing something, and then no one seemed to initiate it. And then they all changed their mind and decided to do something different. The mood. The mood switched. And it fascinated me because I was never in sync. I was never in sync with the rest. I was always the odd one out. And that actually makes you invisible to others. I remember even in high school, right towards the end of the final year of school, one guy saw me in class and said, who are you? I said, I've been in your class for three years. He actually didn't know that I was there. So when it comes to this mind control, what I wanted to add is it's something that I don't even consider it an hypothesis. I, I consider it knowledge. I think I'm right. I'll put it that way. That they understand, as Alan would say, they understand human nature perfectly. They understand that there is silent communication between minds, between brains. And with the correct technique, you don't have to use high technology. But with something as simple as creating the sense of authority that everyone defers to just through that subtle authoritative start, you can make impressions upon millions and millions of people. And how it works is that it, it, it comes through a little voice is put out there, like the butterfly effect. It's considered to be authoritative. So as it enters into minds, it spreads from one mind to the other. And I'm absolutely convinced of this. And as long as they've got that authoritative initiative precept engaged in a society, it can come from any authoritative figure and... You know, with today, they've got TV and radio and internet. That little voice can go through to the human, the human flock of birds, you know, just within, within days. So I don't think it's high technology. I think high technology enables the whole process to go more quickly and the changes to happen more quickly. But the actual process is biological. It's bio, it's bioelectrical. Uh, we, we do receive and transmit thoughts and emotions. That is what's going on. It is what's going on. I've seen it at play. I've actually seen it in action from a young age. And this is why you get doctors, specialists, people that are otherwise 
extremely intelligent and who should see through things and who should speak up. That's why they don't, because they've got a different little voice going through their head from childhood. They've never been able to resist it because they've never really been taught to be individuals. They've never really taught to be individuals. So this mass effect, this mass formation is a thing. It is a thing. And it's largely unconscious and people aren't in control of it. But those who understand this phenomena know how to use it to its fullest. That is why an outsider is, that's why they need to isolate the outsider from the rest. And I think that's why these telegram groups and, as you call them, you know, ghettos, I think the ghettos are there to keep the, the outsiders, the people who are individuals, to themselves, within their own little circle. And the people who are not in that group are protected from them, in a sense. We are so easily managed because our very natures are taken advantage of. There are very few individuals in the world. Anyway, I just wanted to get it out there because it's such an interesting topic. And sometimes I wish I could be part of these, these conversations because they stimulate thought and then you just, hey, I've been wanting to say something about this for a, lo a long time. Anyway, hope all is well and chat again sometime. Bye. What Darren was talking about there is that if you don't conform to the group, then you become actually invisible. And I think that's really true, except with the exception of if you are in one of those primary groups like the family the group that has known you for a long time and has an idea that you should be this way. So normally, if you're in a like a church setting or an office setting or a school setting, then you can get away with being invisible when you don't conform. Alan used to joke that he would be in a situation where, and, and he would start it, he might say something like, well, how about those Jays, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays? And he said what he noticed was that just by saying that, then it got the group talking about that. It got over that awkward silence. They didn't really want to have a conversation. They didn't want to have a conversation with him. They were just waiting for someone to open the door to something that they wanted to talk about. And he said they would just take off. He didn't need to know. He said that the only trick of it was to get the the team right, the season right. You know, he didn't have any idea about sports, but he could say, how about those Jays? And I think that in a family setting, though, there will be ways in which you're supposed to conform or you're told that you're supposed to conform, and they'll notice if you, you know, step out of line, so to speak. And from a female point of view, it's like when I returned here, you know, a, a childhood friend immediately started telling me what vitamin supplements that I could take and I should take that would... Um, actually return my hair to its darker color, you know. Uh, so I, I did not try the supplements, but I don't even remember now what they were. I would share that with those of you who want to eliminate your gray hairs. <laughs> and then a cousin of mine was just horrified to see me with gray hair, and she said, you should color your hair. And I said, well, my hair grows like a weed, and then, you know, the gray would be showing, and 
a week or 10 days and the upkeep on something like that. I just don't have the time or interest in keeping it up. And she said, well, do what I do. See, I've gone blonde. I'm not trying to be the, the darker brown of my youth. I'm just blonde. And I said, well, the the color value of my silver hair and your blonde hair is really similar, right, against the skin tone. I mean, you know, doesn't the silvery gray look good with my skin <laughs> the way blonde looks with yours? So I'm talking to her about color value and the logic of that, and she wasn't having it. And the reason why is because unconsciously or subconsciously she knows that there is a judgment against aging. There's ageism. You're, you're not supposed to allow that to happen. You're supposed to fight against it. You're supposed to color your hair and continue to hold on to this youthful image of you because we live in a culture that values youth. And we didn't have that conversation because all she wanted to do was tell me to dye my hair blonde, and I knew that. And You know, and another example from the female point of view about conformity, you know, I picked up my Aunt Betty and brought her over for lunch last week, and we pulled into the driveway, and she said, your lawn looks terrible. And I said, I know. Actually, I didn't say I know. I said, it does. I agreed with her. (laughs) I just agreed. I said, it does. And that was it. She didn't want to pursue it. But sometimes when I'm taking her and and her friend, her her next-door neighbor and friend out on errands, which I do about once a week, we're driving out of their neighborhood and going off to the whatever shop they need to go to, and we every house that we pass gets the the stamp. Well, maybe not every house, but it gets the stamp of approval or disapproval. Oh, you know when so and so owned that house, they always cut the yard up so beautifully. And I just don't know what they're thinking. I mean, look at that; it's all overgrown, and you know. And then they drive by. Oh, look how nice their lawn looks, you know. And I'm sure that they're all remembering when my mother maintained this yard, and somehow my mother managed to have daffodils and irises in Texas, you know, in this heat. and But I just don't do that for a variety of reasons. It's mostly because time is precious to me. Um, but it's also, you know, things don't, things are more expensive now than they used to be. And it would be like me standing out there spraying champagne on the yard. And that's how expensive it would be to keep the grass green. So I don't. <laughs> but these things are noticed. This is conformity. And as Alan talked about in this this blurb, wherever you are in time, whatever uh, socioeconomic strata you are in, you know, your group, your social group, has a different set of norms that you're supposed to keep up with. And we all know this. And in that way, Darren is right. I think it is... It is almost unconscious, and we have these messages given to us in so many different ways that we just know. It's like a, you know, the the wealthy wife in New York City. And they they call them the the philanthropist type. They're the social X-rays. Um, they are so thin you can see right through them, and it's a joke, you know, social X-ray. But that's what is required 
for them to conform to the norms of their world. And this talk of Alan's is is now going to be in my uh, collection of must-listen-to once a year at least. It's a good one. It's the sweeping panorama of history, but he gets to what I call, you know, the the kind of gold nuggets where you are hearing him talk about life and death and meaning and purpose, and the individual versus the mass man. And I think these talks are just so important. So I was happy to stumble on this in my hunt for a redux. Sometimes I've thought before, like, what's the one word that characterizes Alan's work? And, you know, ob- obvious word would be truth, because he has told us the truth about this ancient system that we're all born into. But often I have thought that the word the word that I think of when I think of Alan, the man and Alan's talks is freedom. And I've said it before, he was a freedom loving man, but I think like that fellow Scotsman, William Wallace, in the movie Braveheart, it's, he's played by Mel Gibson, who that that cry, that that cry, freedom, and that is Alan. But he would not do the William Wallace because his knowledge of history is so profound. I think that he knew that to be looking for the utopia for that earthly freedom in a system where there where. There is always, has always been an oligarch, a ruling elite, that the freedom that we seek is in our own minds. This is where we have to find it. And I think this is why Alan returned again and again to the idea of knowing yourself and looking, you know, at the man in the mirror. And in the context of this particular blurb, I think it is seeing where we maybe even unconsciously conform to norms that are put on us that we don't really choose. And I, I think one little benefit for me um, is this sense I've mentioned before of the, the fl- how quickly time flies and how precious it is. And I don't want to waste a moment and playing the conformity game. I, I want to do my thing, which I think is important. So I don't necessarily keep up with all of the news, and I certainly don't keep up with the Joneses, and my neighbors may be appalled, but I look around and everybody's grass is dead. That's like my brother said about people who keep their lawns green in this kind of weather. He said they're just bragging. They're showing off. <laughs> So that's good enough for me. I don't need to show off. I don't need to keep up with the Joneses. And I don't need to keep up with the news necessarily. I think it's more important for me to get to have a little bit of time to go inside my own mind and reflect on things. Speaking of Mel Gibson movies, there was another uh, movie that Alan and I liked quite a bit that Mel Gibson starred in called Gallipoli. And this is a very 
well done film about World War One, and it's worth watching just because there's so much in there about, you know, like the wars of attrition, the, the, the horror of trench warfare. And these young men knew that when their heads popped up out of the trench, uh, had to go onto the battlefield, their, their chances of returning were very slim. But one of the characters in this movie was based, um, Archie somebody, I don't remember, but he, he was based on a real sprint runner in Australia who had a lot of natural talent, but he was keen to go to war. So the Mel Gibson character joins him, and they're going to walk across the outback to go to Perth to catch a ship to go to Turkey to fight against the Germans. This is the plan. And they're out in the desert, the outback. They get a little lost, and they run out of water, and, you know, it's this is not good. And an older man stumbles on him. He's got a, a camel with him. He's a camel trader. And so he basically rescues them, and then he asks them what they're doing in the outback with no provisions. And they tell him that they're going to Perth, and he said to get a job to work. And they said, no, we're going to, to war. And the old man said, with who? And they look at each other, and the Mel Gibson character goes, he'll tell you. And so Keen Archie says, with the Germans, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but the Germans started it, and, and uh, so we're going to fight them. Uh, and, and he goes, and, and you know, the old man goes, where? And you're going to Germany. No, we're going to Turkey, because... Uh, the, the Turks are allies of the Germans, and so the Australians were going over there to fight them. And the old man says, why? And again, the two young guys look at each other like, where has this guy been? And, and, and the Archie character, he says, because if we don't stop them there, they'll come over here and take our country from us. And the old guy, he looks around at this, the, the outback where all you see is sand for miles and miles in all directions and he said let him have it and that character made Alan laugh you know he was a character a true unique individual who was not part of the mass he was not conforming to a norm of his time I think that that is it a good enough intro for a really wonderful talk and I thank you. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, and this is CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and Alan Watt Sentient Sentinel.eu on July the 27th, 2007. And boy, the time is flying by. All over Canada and the States and parts of Europe, They've been having the odd weather that had to happen to match the global warming scam that's going on. We've had flooding in different parts of Europe, flooding in some parts of Quebec with the incessant rains. And everyone, of course, is meant to talk about it because the media is all talking about it. And Al Gore is goring on about it. Because that's his job, you see, that's what he was groomed to do. Al Gore, the man from the big oil companies, 
who is related to some very famous people from the past, involved in world management. We are being shown what the effects are supposed to be of global warming. The evenings have been pretty cool. In fact, in July this, this month, I and other people have had to use the wood stove at night, which is a, a first for me. I have used it in the past, maybe once every five years, you put on the wood stove. Into the beginning of July for the first few mornings only, just to get the chill off the air. But this is new because we have to get trained through gradualism that, my God, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And in a sense, they're right, since the aircraft can be seen spraying you and the stuff falls down every day. To cause this global warming, plus the harp is being used to create electromagnetic pulses throughout the atmosphere, which is all part of the same phenomena. It's a science, and sciences are used to dominate us in pretty well every sphere of our lives today. That's what I'm going to talk about, is the sphere of our lives, and what reality is, what reality is projected to us, what we accept as normal, how the the technique of the dialectical process is also built in naturally, in effect, in sense, to everything that happens in our lives, personally, and even nationally and internationally. For every effect or force is an equal and opposite effect or force. Something people experience all the time but never figure out what it is. It's a law of nature. Right into the Middle Ages, we find that the average person, the majority of people, really, in a feudal system, a feudal system with its kings, queens, nobility, aristocracy, its learned class that taught the aristocracies and ran the system as bureaucracies run them today, all worked together to keep their system in place, a system where the bulk of the populace was illiterate. They worked the land primarily and supplied men for the armies, for the kings to go off and conquer. And the world was run by this invisible deity, a god. That's all they were told about, an all-pervasive, all-seeing deity that knew all, knew your thoughts, and could stop you from going to a heaven. A, a heaven is a haven. A haven is where ships come in to ride out the storm. The infantile fantasy that you give to people who live in rather hellish conditions. It makes life seem a bit easier to think you're going to get a reward somewhere where all your trials are over. With the feudal system, most people 
had a sense of insignificance, smallness, in a great scheme of things which they couldn't understand. It was so big and huge, it was beyond their control. And that's the estrangement that comes when you're up against seemingly massive, powerful forces. It wasn't until the Protestant Revolution came along, and it was a revolution in more ways than just a religious revolution. It took the form of religion because religion had been the the primary backing factor to keep the old structure in place, intact. It gave credence to the nobility for their acts because it was it was God's will. They could always justify what they did with their wars and their pillaging and so on. The Protestant Revolution was a revolution in the Hegelian sense, as everything is. On the go long before Hegel came along, they put it into a new term. The ancients knew this as well. Because a thesis always brings in a natural antithesis, which brings to a synthesis, and the synthesis becomes the new thesis. And it's an ongoing process. Some people refer to this as progress. Today we live in a different system because those at the top understand this perfectly well. It's taught to select few people in high positions. They bring in professors to teach them this kind of stuff. Therefore, they try and grab the new synthesis, which will become the thesis, and direct it. They then understand an antithesis will arise, so they create it first and control it. That's why they give you all sides and manipulate you through a particular planned agenda. But getting back to the to the revolutions, the Protestant Revolution was a reaction against this old system which suppressed individuality. And it wasn't until a, a small middle class had gradually gained in numbers and importance that they led the Protestant Revolution partly because the old feudal system wasn't set up to handle them to to let them in to power therefore they created their own opening through revolution that there was Rosicrucian involvement, there's no doubt but the time was ripe to cast off what seemed to be an oppressive form it was oppressive to the middle classes the peasant classes the majority of the public in Europe only knew what the religions gave them, that was their education an education given every Sunday and they'd go home and talk about it because most of them couldn't read they had no access to histories, no access to anything outside their little world. Revolutions in past times were led primarily by middle classes, 
sometimes financed by big capitalist interests who were using those middle classes to fight other competition. In the feudal system, the craftsmen had their guilds. Freemasons are fond of talking about their myths of the, how they were founded. And they're all taught the same myths, basically, and they are myths. It's a modicum of truth in that the craft guilds and all the tradesmen, which all towns and city towns and city-states lived on, were little monopolies. They kept wages up, they kept prices up. They, they worked with each other as a brotherhood. Even in London they had to pass laws at one point because the, the fishery guilds had jacked up the prices so much that the ordinary people couldn't afford the fish. They were rigging prices through agreements with each other. But after the Crusades, you'll find big money came in to the European countries, a lot of from the booty, the loot that they'd pillaged in the Middle East. And some of these guilds became powerful monopolies that then went into the business of trading and giving out capital money, money lending. We all know, at least those who've studied a little bit of history about the goldsmiths, how they started off the system of lending out their, their gold, which always generally was out there somewhere, and then they found out they could give out notes instead to represent the gold that was deposited in their vaults. They found that at no time was all the money deposited in the vaults ever asked for at the same time. Today they call that a run on the banks. And therefore they could print out more and more paper notes than they held in, in gold. Old tricks. Tricks actually had been used long, long before in much older civilizations. But with these revolutions and the Lutheran Revolution, there was also a revolution or a reaction against the old system of feudalism where people were basically fixed in society. There was no upward mobility. There was no real individuality as such. Everyone belonged to their group. The world was very simple. Very simple because all you knew was religion. The plays that you saw were called morality plays, all based on little biblical stories to keep you in line to make you understand what was right and wrong and you would think it was for your deity but it was actually for the system when revolutions break out there's always a counter reaction from the existing system that really ended up with wars 
between the old system of Catholicism backing a feudal system of nobility and aristocracies and a fixed way of life against this new upcoming system of a bigger middle class with its teachings which were spreading down into lower classes of an odd idea of individual salvation individual contact with a deity as opposed to this old all-seeing eye type deity that was very remote and had no personal contact really with an individual who was therefore insignificant everyone felt insignificant in the great scheme of things it was a great mystery the Protestant revolution brought with it this feeling of distinct individuality and out of that came their synthesis of a new system based on what they called the Protestant work ethic which took it to the extreme of greed and accumulation and really was the first setting up of the me type society I and me and mine so there's always a reaction you see to all revolutions which they call progress partly to free a person and it always ends up you're back in chains in another form that you didn't foresee although there are people who do understand this science and they certainly do know it's going to happen and occur the trade guilds some of them amalgamated and became capitalistic lenders big profiteers very powerful and sometimes famous people in history were at the heads of them they became monopolistic and in this new system there was nothing written where an individual could not hold incredible power and money and wealth over countries or whole nations or groups of them it wasn't long before these captains of money and capital and investing after having skirmishes and outright wars with each other at times with private armies amalgamated and formed their higher clubs and that's what we still have today that's what runs the show those captains of commerce again with the Hegelian dialectical process became a synthesis which starts at the beginning of a new thesis because they have a reaction against them setting in and now they are the old system like the old feudal system was they are holding on to their system with an incredible ruthlessness and with the ownership of rather advanced sciences and what we're seeing today is their agenda being fulfilled of domination before they lose it and that's what all the hype and terror is all about of this fascist type 
elite. Very old families going way back, down through to the guilds and even beyond, of moneylenders, commerce, and completely monopolistic values where they have gained ownership of vast areas of the world with its minerals, resources, mining, oil, etc. This push for individual freedom and individual rights leads to its own Hegelian dialectic because there were so many conflicting people with conflicting views, conflicting opinions or needs that they end up forming combines to gain more power and in the combine there are rules and regulations set down over time and once again the individual is submerged into a group, a large group ever expanding we saw this with the emergence of the capitalists who had begun as almost pirates, a lot of them many of their names did go back to the pirate days the buccaneers as they looted and plundered and used the secret societies to back them because they had to keep secrecy to be respectable as to how they had been gaining their wealth we see the people that at one time had been in the peasant classes who were pushed into an industrial era by these same capitalists who promised them freedoms and crowded them into these thrown up industrial cities where they lived in squalor and cramped conditions and worked 16 hours per day at machines they had a very short life expectancy and out of that came people who preached another kind of freedom freedom for the the low level individual natural rights natural freedoms yet to gain it they become unions and large groups and gain power power to even blackmail other people by withholding the produce often to the people's detriment because they could withhold food or coal or whatever else and yet it was easy to see both points of view everything brings about a dialectical problem which will form a synthesis the synthesis is just the rock like formation the solidified end product which will try and hold on to its power and then from that breaks off a new group who wants to go further the old group will always retaliate to try to hold on to what it thinks is normal ongoing, ongoing down through time right to the present time which brings us to the problem of what is individuality it's one thing to be free in your mind it's another to think you are free in your mind 
and in your life. But if you break down what the average person does and what they belong to, even just by birth, is it really individuality? Because everything around you, from the messages on billboards to your education, to parental expectations, to class expectations, to peer expectations, is all to do with conformity. The old joke of be different, wear jeans, is true. If you look at the youngsters especially, those that think they're rebelling by whatever new fashion they're given, never stop to think who gave them the fashion to rebel with because they don't invent it themselves any more than the rap star invented baggy pants with crotches at the knees what they're really showing is they want to conform to a particular group with pre-made standards and uniform uniformity is conformity in this age of group power Groupthink, a movement that started for good reasons towards the end of the industrial era to give power to the individual through the group, through the group demands. We find eventually that the group becomes taken over by the higher psychopaths who know how to manipulate large crowds of people. It's a talent they have. It's only a a step from there to becoming children under this leader. Because we never really shake off the, the big daddy symbol we have in our minds. A symbol that at one time had some kind of deity there at the head. We're always in trouble when we put a, a human being there instead. Every culture fosters conformity. What is conformity when you think you're free, apart from just the dress? It's the codes of behavior. You're taught from a very early age to suppress spontaneous feelings. Spontaneous feelings and expressions of them are part of the development of a real, genuine individual. Yet, it's quite natural for the parents to suppress it. Some of the behavior of children has to be suppressed to give everyone peace, including other children. But there are other expressions of children which are put down on because of the groupthink mentality, the rules of the group or the religion or all the other things which support that particular group. Another thing which will destroy spontaneity and creativity is education. 
because education is authorized from the top as to what education will be. What it will be will be a form of reinforcing and maintaining the system, the group, and the culture. More importantly, it will support an elite who sit on the high boards of all these organizations and decide what the format and what will be taught will be and what will not be. When feelings in children are suppressed, mainly you have feelings of hostility, dislike, abhorrence, avoidance. And you'll hear that. Don't act like that in front of so-and-so. He or she is a good person. But the child instinctively withdraws from this person. They don't like something in them, which generally can't express why. They sense something. All children will have frustrations. We've all had them. Living in a world which is full of rules and regulations do's and don'ts, expectations of behavior, conduct, and even a form of work, which is homework and all this kind of stuff all tied together. Therefore, the child is told all the time that they have to give in, they have to yield to demands. Demands are placed upon them. They become rebellious to an extent, shown in different ways, sometimes harmless, but what they're trying to do, really, is to rebel against the powerlessness that they feel in a society which they don't understand. That's why religion was always used to reinforce the education by giving them all the rules, regulations, and the reasons why things were as they were. Very simplistically, at one time it worked. Today, with science rearing up as a substitute for religion, it's hard to, to use it anymore to give the rules. Not that all the rules are wrong. Why is all this conformity, this necessity to conform, pushed and promoted, even demanded? When children are taught that feelings they're not, not really his own or her own, such as, as I say, to like someone, to like certain people, and to be friendly to them, not to criticize them, to put on a smile. You're teaching them to be fake to begin with. Smile at so-and-so. And then that's augmented later on with social pressure and later life. If you don't smile at someone... Even if you don't smile back at the checkout counter person who's saying, have a nice day, have a nice day, like a robot. These are social niceties, you might say, but it's expectations as well. If you don't smile back, uh, then you're, you're antisocial. You're classed right away. Even though you know this person who's smiling at you is being fake when they're doing it, and they don't mean anything, and they don't even care who you are. You're just an object walking past the checkout counter, one of many. But you act in a pleasing manner, 
you're antisocial. We're taught to always put on a show, to act, to serve an economic system, which boils down to our own survival, ultimately, by putting on a show and acting so that we can sell ourselves to employers. We sell our services if you're self-employed. And it's all fake. It's actually worse when they, they raise up the ladder. If you're in the bottom working class, they don't really care if you're sullen or slow or withdrawn, as long as they can get you to work and they give you a trial period anyway. But if you're selling yourself, it's a different story. You'll be pleasing and a show off being cheerful. You're supposed to turn off the smile and on the smile like a light switch, which is unnatural. So everyone today is acting their little part out in a society which they don't really understand. And because they can't understand it, and because they have frustrations within them and they have expectations of what the society has taught them to expect, and they've been thwarted, they want to blame someone else, preferably a group, because most people are group thinkers and they identify with a group or a culture or a people or a race or a religion. Therefore, they want someone else to blame for all the problems. If it wasn't for this group, we'd be living in utopia. It's the oldest thing in the book. And it's not all lies. There's no doubt about it that nationalism strong ethnic groups that identify with each other certainly do try and generally they're used by very clever people at the top to try and dominate others this is again an, an age old thing so there's truth always modicums of truth here and there of competitive groups down through history they certainly do do nasty things to each other it's only an extension of a couple living together who shouldn't be together who do nasty things to each other as well and blame each other for all the wrongs and ills in their life if we can't get over the basic one, the small version how on earth could you think you could possibly overcome the larger version of nations and peoples warring with each other for dominance and that's why in the ancient times they always had the symbols of the fasci and the symbols of a supposed arch enemy one represented the dominant elite and the power structure and the money structure the commercial structure the other one represented Supposedly, the people together, united, working for themselves, the dialectic process, the opposites. Yet, when either one becomes dominant, it's a horror show for everyone involved, including those on the same side, eventually. That, again, is human nature. When emotions are stifled, 
you lack spontaneity in life. And that's what we see around us. We see expected norms, the smiling grin, which other species of animals have as well. It's a sign of no threat, basically. Or appeasement, or you're ready to appease. We've been taught to go back to simple animalistic traits rather than express ourselves. To be an emotional person has become synonymous with being unsound or unbalanced. This weakens the individual. It flattens the personality. It flattens the conversations within people. Therefore, they're left to trivia, acceptable trivia, which doesn't threaten anyone, you see. But if emotions are suppressed, like anything which is suppressed, it will come out in other ways. And it comes out in our societies in a thousand ways. And that's why you have all these cheap and gaudy uh, sentimental songs which express things which people crave and cannot express in their real lives. And, of course, the, the whole industry goes overboard with it to the nth degree. And the same with movies. The wish fulfillment of that which is starved is expressed in movie form in intense, condensed ways because people are emotionally starved in their, in their personal lives. Not just to receive emotion, but to give it out. It's taboo. And the more scientific the culture becomes, the more taboo this need, this, this dominant need of the elite to suppress these emotions in the people becomes as well. We're becoming the Borg, you see. The ancients in Greece had various plays they put on called tragedies. Tragedies dealt with the experiences of everyone, of the joy of youth, the joy of having friends, the joy of so many things, or even having a family or offspring, and watching them grow up and participating in their lives. But it also dealt with death. Different cultures deal with death in different ways. When there's a higher form of individual right or freedom in a society they will behave differently towards death than people who are still in the groupthink mentality in Greece they put all of the emphasis on living the big puzzle life and death they put all the emphasis on life itself and give expression to life to live it to the full that death was just a, a, a strange, shadowy place where the shades would gather and do not much at all, just stand around. So they didn't go into it in any great detail. Egyptians were different. They had uh, pharaohs were 
and the elite of, of Egypt had the power of a God on earth. Their word was, was law. Their command was carried out without hesitation on anything. They were God on earth and therefore they had a belief in the indestructibility of the human body of a God. Therefore they tried to preserve those same bodies to last forever and ever after death through embalming processes. They never really came to terms with something beyond Judaism faced it differently again they accepted the idea of the destruction of individual life and they gave it a a vision of a state of happiness and justice which would be reached by future offspring that was really how as far as ever went Christianity because of its commercial based system it rode the back of an empire from its beginning in Constantine a commercial system a power structure a governmental structure and therefore it was highly suppressed life was supposed to be partly miserable and quite often a lot miserable whereas they gave you a heaven where utopia would be and all your all your trials would be over. So they would comfort people by promises of some kind of nice life after death, your reward. And here we are today in the post-religious society where science became God. This is constantly telling us of his new theories which contradict generally their older theories or even yesterday's theory but regardless like all gods they want total control and obeyance you see that through laws getting passed because of supposed findings within science that affect our health and other things yet our era in the scientific age people deny death altogether You might think that's a funny statement to make, but it's a fact. Because we don't have an early education into a theology. We have nothing except the hard sciences. Sciences which dehumanize the people. They've told us we're just flukes of nature. We watch them re-engineer people through inoculations even though the evidence is piling up and has been into mountains of evidence that there's something nefarious behind these inoculations and there's a fact to that there's no doubt whatsoever in other words it's not all unintentional all these side effects but people deny death today and because of that they're, they're neurotic about it they can't talk about it but they show their neurosis in many, many ways. Death and suffering that comes to certain people, sometimes all people at certain times, at least the suffering part, all death always comes, used to be one of the strongest incentives for life 
itself. You, you, you are pro-life because of those things. It was a cohesive force for people to come together in times of trouble. Without the negative side of things, you can't appreciate the positive side of things. Therefore, if you deny the negative, you will not enjoy the positive either. You won't, know, you won't get to the positive side. You'll always be searching and trying to fill something by other means, which are... It's like eating a cheap chocolate when you've had uh, a really expensive one. And regardless how much people try to deny the whole problem of death, the idea is alive and well inside in spite of the suppression. It's the reason for the flatness of the experiences in most people's lives. It's a fear sitting behind everything which won't go away. We show that in the Western world, this tremendous fear of death by the incredible amount of money people lavish on funerals. So it's some kind of payoff a tribute to appease something, but uh, apart from making morticians incredibly wealthy and giving a place to cry to all the, the mourners where they can at least express something, albeit they're guarded and they feel a bit ashamed and embarrassed of doing so in our society. We lavish so much money on funerals, incredible. And that's the reason why the New Age was promoted to fill that gap and also to alter the people to a higher agenda of which they know nothing. It's actually to train them all into a new society by a dominant elite who understand the things I'm talking about tonight. They have the scientists involved, the historians, the philosophers, and they foresee a time when they will be unable to manage their tidy world and they have to bring down the populations drastically and they have these captains of industry that have been here for a long time these same captains that destroyed the old system the same descendants of them have decided to bring us into a next system where all of the problems of society will be taken care of because they plan to eradicate the problem of individualism and sentient thought within the masses that is utopia for them absence of all opposition to their agenda and it's a cruel agenda because science must be cruel it's its nature when it's given itself the status of all powerful religion you will always have incredible cruelty because eventually they demand laws passed on everything, every facet of what they see as their system, this intellectual elite. And no matter how crazy the law is or how crazy their theory is for passing the law, it's done anyway. And we, we saw this to an extent within the Soviet Union with various laws that were passed there that seemed absolutely ludicrous. Yet now those same laws are being passed here by the same totalitarian mindset. Totalitarian mindsets don't really care what flag they wear above their heads. 
it doesn't matter really to them as long as it's a, it's a huge group thing of the dominant minority at the top and they're all in agreement psychiatry was used for a good purpose at the beginning at least to demythologize a lot of the taboos and restraints that created problems within people that manifested in various kinds of neurosis but then as always as I say as when they get power and become more acceptable they start to become dogmatic and they themselves become conformists the pioneers are gone and those who take over are conformists they're not creative people within themselves those who take over will always conform and they will then just label people as infantile or neurotic and stick them on people like a label that don't conform the conventional pattern of what they claim is a normal individual how can you use standardization on people when we're all sort of supposedly different what is normal normal is conformist if we take the normal people of the communist era in a Soviet Russia they're different from the normal people of the post-Soviet Russia. Culture is given to the people and stamped and approved from above in all ages and periods. It's the same in the Western world, exactly the same in the Western world. A dominant minority approves and makes sure that you get your downloading through movies and television of an ideal of your world which doesn't exist and you're supposed to conform to that ideal all fiction to do with your home with police and, and law the legal system and even health and the hospital dramas are all propaganda to give you a false impression of what they're really all about so that you will conform and obey from day one at school you're taught to conform original thinking is taboo it isn't until certain people with certain qualities useful to the dominant minority show their special abilities that they're pulled out of the mainstream schooling often bypassing university and brought up to a higher position and given knowledge not even given to professors at universities and brought into the weapons industry to the sciences that are way beyond in physics for weaponry for advanced flying craft for viral and bacterial warfare purposes and all the things that we're not supposed to know about because psychically would collapse if we knew how horrible was the machinery piled above our heads and held by a small dominant minority. There are three levels of science. Professorship down is for the mainstream. 
including the professor, he doesn't know either. Some of them do catch on later in life as they move in their circles. But the brighter ones, the ones who have qualities, not necessarily better people by human standards, but in fact, generally they're not. They often have psychopathic traits, but they're pulled out of college or university, wherever they're spotted, bypassed, and put up there to work in the real sciences because the dominant minority have gone so far into preparation of maintaining themselves for what they hope is ever that they cannot ever divulge to the public the sword of Damocles which they hold over our heads as I say the flattening of emotion in our society is just conformity anyone showing other traits will be instantly diagnosed and labelled and slapped in the little observation chamber where they'll be readjusted to get back into this normal society a normal society where people are floundering they're falling apart their families are falling apart because this is the end of that era for families really it's it's already happened before we were born because relationships now are dysfunctional we're following patterns which worked before for a certain period a period where they had different standards and moralities and beliefs all of that's been taken from the people but they're still trying to emulate that which went before and you see the fallout everywhere because the system we're in is incredibly cruel this whole commercial exploitative system is intensely cruel it's a predatory system where everyone is taught to be a predator on everyone else and if you're very good at it you're called successful a go-getter Today we have fewer and fewer people who can integrate completely their personality. And that was something which was stressed even in ancient times when things were not quite so stressful for longer periods. There was less exploitation. There was less psychological warfare put upon people And yes, even your daily download of advertising in the media is part of psychological warfare. It's intended to make you terribly unhappy with what you have. In fact, they know you're unhappy because of the system which is controlling you. Therefore, they give you fake, false substitutes, placebos, very expensive ones, which promise to make you very happy and fulfilled. We're exploited from cradle to grave in this system. And this is called normal today. In ancient times, know thyself was a fundamental command that aimed at strength and happiness within, because that's the only place it can possibly exist. It's not from out there or from some product that's made. It's from within. And it's the same with your social relations relations. 
you don't pair up with a partner because that partner is going to make you happy. That's a Western concept that came along with the whole idea of commercialization and exploitation. You have to be happy within yourself, and hopefully the partner is too, for anything deeper to grow. We're kept in the dark in the system by a mammoth, which is our overlord, a mammoth of very powerful families, dynasties, with wealth, incredible wealth, coming out of a capitalistic system, very old, where they monopolized and monopolized until they, they own most of the globe in their systems standards, that is. However, with a stroke of a pen, another system could eradicate that right to dominate the whole planet or to own all of its resources. The answers are rather simple, and that's why we have all these governments and experts constantly telling us it's too complicated for our simple little minds to understand. That's so far from the truth, that's the big trick because the problems in life are very simple to see and the solutions are very simple to see the doing of them could take some effort especially with yourself when Bertrand Russell and others talked about creating a world where people would not be able to think for themselves they would have to rely on experts they did believe they had to rely on experts to make very important choices and decisions in their lives for them he meant it and they all meant it they tell us that the problems are so complex that only specialists can understand them and we are too limited in our fields of understanding this is to discourage us from trusting our own capacity to think about those problems that really matter, to make us distrust ourselves. It creates a feeling of being helplessly caught in a chaotic mass of data. And we're supposed to wait with pathetic patience until the specialists have found out what to do and where to go. And of course we won't understand their strange decision because it will be bizarre to us generally because it's for a different reason than the one they're telling you we become cynical in the system we live in because we suspect we're being fooled all the time and because of that we become cynical with each other this is meant to paralyze the ability to think for yourselves it was discussed in higher circles a long time ago that they would do this and use these techniques to do so and we've been living we've been born into this system we were taught not to trust ourselves people are addicted to television talk shows and the, the they realize the superstars they're presented with are just actors 
and a whole team of staff put that one-hour show together. It's meant to bring you to what you think is your conclusion on a particular topic. It's also meant to show you how big and complex and scary this world is and how insignificant you are. The same return back, the clock going back to the old medieval days when you were just a little creation in the great scheme of things which was beyond your understanding and you left everything to the priests and the aristocracies and nobilities and kings and queens. It's the same thing. It took a long time for at least the chance of individuality to be taken by people for the average individual. It took a lot of suffering and many revolutions to bring us to this stage. The elite who are still in charge because it's their system and money and money system and that's the perverse fact about it. You see, you can't alter something if you're using the same basic problem. It will always manifest itself in either side of the dialectic. People today are trying to escape from individualism and go back. And hence you see the rise of massive groups generally funded by the same boys who run the system because it's much easier to control millions of people under a single leader that they supply you with than it is to get right to each individual person independently. Very old trick. Create the group, put your man in. Now you control all the minds of the people with less effort. It's more efficient that way. People are joining groups of all kinds looking for answers. And I always tell people for every decision you come to in this life, there's a group out there ready made for you to join. It's been purpose made for you, in fact. And it will guide you along what you want to believe in or think or work towards. And you'll be used like a willing fool. And you'll never know what's really behind it. It is no coincidence that the greatest philanthropists for non-governmental organizations, the same ones that are demanding laws to take all your rights away regarding land, homes, and other aspects of your living, it's no accident they're all funded by the same rich people of the world who run and own the resources of the world and actually are taking over more and more of them as they, as they use their NGO groups on the other side to push for laws to be passed telling us that the average person is too irresponsible to be in charge of something as important as a little piece of land we're too ignorant you see it takes specialists to do that. So they say. Always beware of those who are well funded and claim to be there to free you and to speak for you. Because if you give authority to them, you'll see the same repetitions 
that other large groups have seen in history. A utopia turns into a horror show, even for those followers who help bring it about. Individuality is something to be sought after and to be worked on. It takes a deep understanding of the past, but more importantly, it takes a deeper understanding of yourself. And when you learn not to compare yourself with others, when you don't have a neurotic breakdown, when you're not dressing the same as your neighbors or looking the same or conforming in the same ways, then you're doing well. You're either an individual or you're conformist. People confuse fads with individuality. Intellectuals are the greatest ones for fads where someone comes out with a new technique of writing or skill or poetry and before you know it there's a plethora of them out there and they all join a group and talk beautiful and wondrous words to each other until it ends up being abstract verbiage as they try to impress each other with their wit and their intellect. Fads are simply another way of another bunch creating a new conformity for themselves. As we try to escape from the prison walls, we tend to build new ones right away because we're used to them. The closest thing in the past to a true individual was once again the anarchist not the anarchist who went around tossing bombs all over the place but anarchy in its true meaning meant an individual who didn't conform to anyone's standards he didn't tread on anyone's toes either he simply would walk around and listen to what was being said agree or disagree not be allowed to be bullied into agreeing he would take the worthwhile discard the nonsense and go his own way that was initially the real meaning of it because this is an archie we live in you see this is archie from the old religion the old promise of the deity was as long as the sun shone then these laws would be fixed and the people would live the sun travels in an arc across the sky from our point of view that was the Ark of the Covenant, of course. The Covenant being, yes, you'll have cloudy days and you won't see me. You'll have your downs, but you'll also have your sunny ones too. And that's the most you could hope for from life. Anything against that system was anarchy, you see. Those who would not conform and buckle under and do as we were told because, simply because it was custom to do what you were told was called an anarchist it later became a form of rebellion when it attached itself to other movements we are social creatures we're gregarious 
we like to interact. Our problem really is, can we still interact and retain complete individuality or freedom of our own thoughts? You'll find that people, even friends, will turn on you if you give out too many contradictory opinions from that which is quietly solidifying in themselves as a group and they become group thinkers without realizing it. It's a a scary thing when you realize that most people have to convince you of their side of an argument and not only convince you but win you over to it. I have no problem in understanding and agreeing to disagree and leave it at that without falling out over it. But you'll find that most people will fall out over it because they want you simply to think as they think or believe as they believe. We find that all the time in our interpersonal relationships. And that's our big dilemma, apart from and I have an elite that's given us their system of money, commerce, and successful predation. We also have a problem with our own individuality. Can we handle it or not? That's the big question mark right now. Many people will love complete and utter dictatorial socialism because they can't handle individuality. They want to remain Peter Pan's forever in perpetual childhood and play. Well, only a fool would do that because if you don't grow up, you won't know the real world and you won't know the nasty monsters above you or their plans to manipulate you or do worse things. Children aren't told the truth and the choice to not know the truth is that is a choice. When you see the eyes glaze over when you're telling something of importance to someone for their own survival's sake and the sake of others, they're making the choice right there to be a Peter Pan or to risk knowing, which means you risk acting on it. It also risks discarding all the comfort zones, albeit fake as they are, the society has given them to believe in. That's it for tonight. Have a good weekend. From Hamish and myself, it's good night. And may your God, or your gods, go with you. Whose garden was this? It must have been lovely. Did it have flowers? I've seen pictures of flowers And I'd love to have smelled one Whose river was this? You say it ran freely Blue was its color I've seen blue in some pictures And I'd love to have been there 